Thanks again for joining us online. I always had a nightmare of preaching to an empty sanctuary. I always thought that would happen after a really, really bad joke, but apparently this is not a bad joke. Here we are. And I'm glad you joined us. You know, as I mentioned last Sunday, I was in a, in a little remote, remote village, Ciro Campa, Panama. And uh, uh, that church, here's an interesting story about that. Two years ago, our medical mission team, that's what we were doing this week. Our medical mission team went to Ciro Campa to hold a, 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 a medical clinic. There was no churches, no contacts, no anybody that we knew, just a place where we held a medical clinic. And so we did, and because of that outreach, now two years later, we were there, a church's meeting, it was a, a vibrant congregation, they don't have walls, they don't have a floor, they don't have pews or nice seats, but it's a church of Jesus Christ, and we were so excited to be there last Sunday. It was a great trip. We, we saw a, a little over 400 patients while we were there. Um, this was the one bad thing that happened on this trip. We've taken 22 trips to Panama in the last five years. This is the first time we've ever had to take anyone to an emergency room. And we had to this week. A lady in our group uh, fell and, and dislocated her ankle, broke a part of her, her, a bone in her leg, broke a, uh, uh, her hand. So we, we need to continue to pray for our friend. But it, other than that terrible thing, it was a great week. And my three favorite things were probably that worship service last Sunday, quite honestly, the best worship service, when there, there was no walls, there was, there, was, there was just that tin roof, the children's area was down a hill, and, and they were kind of, of in this area where they were making lunch for everyone who, who was at the service, and, and coffee, I didn't eat the lunch, I did drink the coffee, it was too sweet for me, they must put a ton of sugar in it, but it was, it was a great service. Probably my second favorite thing of the week was as for part of the week, I helped our optometrist. Chris Hall was there, and we saw a lot of people give away so many glasses. And the one day I was helping and, and putting on some glasses on this older lady, and to test out her new glasses, she grabbed her well-worn Bible and started reading from her Bible. In fact, she read and read and read. I thought she was going to read the whole Bible, but when she finally did stop. But it was just a beautiful, beautiful time in that, in that place. And then the third thing that I really liked about this trip, our, uh, the Panamanian government, like our government, is restricting large group gatherings. And so on Wednesday night, we discovered that our Thursday clinic was going to be canceled. And so typically, we, we have four days of clinic. On the fifth day, Friday, we do a touring day, and Saturday, we come home. Well, Wednesday, we found out the clinic couldn't meet. And so, so we're trying to do well. We might just do our touring day and see if we could get our flight changed till Friday. But then the suggestion was, well, if we can't do a clinic out in some place, let's do a clinic for the hotel workers. Those folks who, who serve us and help us every trip that we go and all the other teams that go into Panama. So that's exactly what we did on Thursday morning. We saw the, the maids and the maintenance guys and the front desk help and the kitchen help. And they came in. We saw about 27 people uh, Thursday morning. What a wonderful time that was. And then we were able to get back home and everyone's home safe and sound. And, and so it was a really great trip. I told the, the church last Sunday morning that they were going to be uh, kind of my guinea pigs. I was going to practice on them for the passage I'm preaching to you all today. And so, so I'm going to preach it just like I preached it last Sunday in Panama, just with my Bible, no iPad. Uh, and, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16. 
We've been in this series called Peter's Tale, and it's looking at the story of Jesus through the eyes of Peter. And, and as you know, the, the gospel writers, they, they, they mention the disciples of Jesus. Twenty times John is mentioned, same with Judas Iscariot. Uh, Peter's brother Andrew is mentioned 12 times. Thomas, uh, doubting Thomas, he's mentioned 10 times. So is Matthew. The rest of the disciples three or four times. But Peter, Peter's mentioned 120 times. It seems like wherever Jesus is, there Peter is. And, and we learn a lot about ourselves and a lot about, about life through Peter's eyes. And so we've already looked at a couple of passages already. When I began this series two weeks ago, we looked at when Jesus called Peter. And, and named him Peter the Rock. You know, Simon, you shall be called Peter the Rock. And then last week, Pastor John Livengood was preaching, and he talked about the time that, that Peter walked out to Jesus a few steps on the water as Jesus was coming across the water in the storm and how Jesus calmed the storm. And now in Matthew 16, uh, Jesus takes the disciples to a place, and this is how it reads in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, let, let me stop right there. If you have your Bibles at home, just, just grab them now because we're going to be just in this passage all morning long. There's two Caesareas in, mentioned in the Bible. Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea, built by Herod the Great. Carl and I have been there. It's a beautiful place, very picturesque on the, on the Mediterranean. A huge, it was a huge city back in the day. And then there's Caesarea Philippi, this, this Caesarea. This is the only place that this Caesarea is mentioned in the Bible. It's just right here, just for this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. Caesarea Philippi was built by Herod the Great's son, Philip. It was the northernmost portion of, of Israel, right where kind of the Gentile world met Israel. It was a very, very pagan city. There at Caesarea Philippi, there's a temple for the Greek god Pan. There's also, it's, it's a beautiful location because in Caesarea Philippi, uh, there's a waterfall. It's not like uh, Niagara Falls, but the largest waterfall that any of those people would have ever seen. And it was about 30 feet high waterfall, and there was a huge rock wall of 70 feet high. In the middle of that rock wall was a cave, and inside the cave was a cavern. And people would go, pagan worshipers would go, worshiping this Greek god Pan, they would go to that location and take their sacrifice. Usually it was shepherds or, or common folks. And they would take a lamb or a, a chicken or, or something like that. And they would toss it into the cavern. Into an underground stream. And away it would go. And that's where Jesus was taking these disciples for this conversation. No, it, It's out of the way. If you've been to the Holy Land, you've probably been to Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea. You may not have been to Caesarea Philippi because it's out of the way. It was a two-hour or a two-day walk up and a two-day walk back. Good Jews didn't go to that place because, it, again, it was a very, very pagan place. But that's where Jesus took his disciples. No doubt they were thinking, why in the world would Jesus bring us here? And then we find out when Jesus asked them the questions. Uh, the question is going to follow, and he's, after this conversation... Uh, Jesus must not have wanted anyone to hear the conversation, no one to overhear the conversation. Because at the end of this, Jesus is going to tell the disciples in verse 20 and 16, he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. He wanted this, this conversation to be secret, out of the earshot of the Pharisees or anyone else. And so, Jesus gets to that very, very important question when he says, 
who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is an interesting title. Only Jesus uses it in the first century. It's a reference back to the book of Daniel when Daniel refers to the one coming in the clouds, ushering in his eternal kingdom. It's a good description of who Jesus is, but no one, no one was really using that term in, in the first century, only Jesus. The other versions, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, they simply say, uh, uh, who, do, who, do you, who do they say that I am? doesn't use that phrase, son of man. But here, out of earshot of anyone, Jesus says, who do, who do people say the son of man is? And the disciples, you might expect them to say, well, well, Jesus, you're, you're the, they're saying that, that you're a great healer. You've healed so many. You're a great provider. You've, you've given meals to thousands of people. Maybe you would have expected them to say, well, well they're, they're saying on the street that, that you love children or that you're kind or you're a friend of sinners. But that's not what they said. What they said was, was some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It's interesting that that's the three prophets that they cho chose to name off. All of those three, they were fireballs. All of them, they, they spoke the truth to people in power. And all of them had a very difficult life. John the Baptist, you know, he was beheaded. Elijah was chased by Jezebel, eventually taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, the Bible tells us. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was put in stocks in the city center, was thrown into a cistern full of mud, was tossed into jail. Not an easy life by any means. They're saying, that's the word on the street, Jesus. That's who, who people are saying. You are. But then Jesus said this. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Ah, that's the real question. Now, before we get to the answer, the answer that Peter gives, let me ask that of you. Who do you say Jesus is? Maybe you're saying, well, well Jesus is, is my Lord. Jesus is my, my healer. He, he healed me. I was sick, and he healed me, and I know, I know, I give all the credit to Jesus. Maybe you're saying, he is my Savior. He's my friend. Or maybe, maybe you at home, watching online, are saying, well, I really don't know. If I'd be perfectly honest, I would say, I, I don't know who who Jesus is. I know what people say about him. I know that he was a good teacher. I know that he, he died in about the year 33. But I don't really know who, who Jesus is. Well then, stay with me. We're going to get there. Have you ever been in a classroom when a teacher asks a question and you think you know the answer? You're, you're pretty certain you know the answer. You're almost 100% sure you know the answer. But you don't want to look foolish in front of the other students. And in case your answer is wrong, you certainly don't want to blurt that out. And so you just kind of, uh, you close your eyes or you look down at the floor or maybe you shuffle your feet and you don't say anything. I think that's what's going on here with the disciples. Jesus says, all right, who do people say that I am? They say you're Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah. Who do you say I am? And all the disciples ah, started looking down at the floor and shuffling their feet. But it was Peter, Simon Peter who blurted out, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let's unpack Peter's answer a little bit. Messiah means anointed one. The people in the first century were expecting some 
great leader, a warrior king, really. Much like the Maccabees had been a, a century and a half earlier. You may remember them. The uh, Jewish folks still remember the, the triumph of the Maccabees. They're, they're, they were uh, a, a group who revolted against Rome. They, they ruled Judea for about three years. The Roman rulers had wanted to wipe out Jewish culture, even sacrifice a pig at the temple. And the Maccabees rose up. One of them was Simon Maccabee. Maybe it was that Simon was named after Simon Maccabee. And so Peter is saying, saying, we think you're the Messiah, someone even greater than the Maccabees. And then he said, and you are not just that. Again, remember, in, in sight, in distance, no doubt, of that pagan temple to the Greek god Pan, uh, a tape, uh, in a city called Caesarea Philippi, named for Caesar, who was, who was voted by the Senate after he died, Caesar Augustus, to be a god. I'm not sure that's how you get to be a god. You can't be voted in by the Senate to be a god, but that's how Caesar Augustus became god. But Peter said, no, no, no. You're the Messiah. The son of the living God. Well, Jesus, he liked that answer. And he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by our Father in heaven. You didn't just come to this on your own, Peter. This is, this is not just your answer, but God gave you this answer. We believe in provenient grace. We believe any movement towards God isn't from our own, but it's God's grace pouring out onto us. God reaching out to us. God calling us. God grabbing us. God, God moving towards us. That's provenient grace. I told you plenty of times how my dad was a, was a drunk and his dad was a drunk. His mom died of alcohol poisoning when he was two years old. His, everyone in his family were alcoholics. And I told you how he found his way into a Nazarene church and, and went home that night and, it, and prayed some kind of prayer and, and became a follower and totally changed the trajectory of our family. But what prompted my dad to go to that Nazarene church that day? Well, partly it was my mom saying that she wanted a divorce. And partly it was because his sister, my aunt, started attending a Nazarene church, so he knew Nazarenes weren't a cult. And partly it was because a couple of people, I don't know who, came to our door, knocked on the door. My sister, who was six years old at the time, went to the door, and they invited her to Sunday school, and her response was, my dad heard her. Her response was, oh, my dad won't allow us to go to Sunday school. And God used those situations and many others, no doubt. His provenient grace reached down to that son of an alcoholic, grandson of an alcoholic of families who were all alcoholics and pulled him, led him into the church. Provenient grace. Jesus says, Peter, this didn't just come to you. This was, this was brought to you through the grace of God Almighty. And then he said this, and then I tell you, you are Peter. He had already named him that. On this rock, I will build my church. Notice it's not your church. It's not my church. It's the Lord's church, the church of Jesus Christ. It's the church of those who proclaim what Peter just proclaimed. You are the Messiah the son of the living God. That's whose church it is. Messiah, the son of the... And all those gather. Remember, the church isn't... It's not this building. 
If you're at home today, you'd be sitting, normally you'd be sitting in the sanctuary here and you'd look, we have a beautiful building. This is not, it's not a building. The church of Jesus Christ, those who proclaim that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, those are the ones. The church's people gathered in his name. Last Sunday, it was the church in, in Panama, dirt, a, a tin roof, dirt floor. Their children's area was a portion of the woods. Their cafeteria was a, was a pot of, 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 of chicken soup boiling. That was the church of Jesus Christ, just as much as this is the church of Jesus Christ. It's a people. A people who, you know, they may not look the same, they may not talk the same, but they all proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's what, that's what Jesus said. I will build my church. And then he says this, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of hell will not overcome the church of Jesus Christ. We talked about this a few weeks ago in here, that gates are a defensive term. And it's often we think, oh, that hell is, is attacking the church and all the forces of hell are attacking the church and, and we've got to be, you know, bunkered down because hell is attacking us. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying hell is on the defensive, that we are the church of Jesus Christ, the ones who believe in that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, and we are on the offense. We are rescuing those who are perishing. We are grabbing those that are, that, that are behind those gates and those that are dying, and we are rescuing those. We're redeeming those. We are finding those and bringing them into a place of knowledge of Jesus Christ as the, the Messiah, the son of the living God. We are on the offense. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, during this situation, we are still the church of Jesus Christ. COVID-19 cannot defeat the church. The church has survived. The church will go on. The people of God will move. And as we act like Jesus, as we behave like Jesus, as we, as we proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the church will move forward in these days and all days. Jesus goes on to say, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The keys. You give keys to people who are in authority. If you go on vacation, you may give your keys to your house, to your neighbor, to make sure that everything is fine while you're away. Now, if your neighbor was a crook, if your neighbor was untrustworthy, you would never give the keys to them. No, you give the keys to people that you trust, to people you can count on. Uh, in Jesus' day, the, most of the cities were walled cities, and there were Entrances. You can go to Old City Jerusalem and you'll see some of those entrances. They were, they were controlled by someone that had keys on the inside. They determined who was going to come in and who was going to go out. Keys were important then and now. And Jesus is saying, you hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You hold the authority. The gospel, the ones who have the knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. That's again what he's building on. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You hold that key. And then he goes on to say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This was a reference to the rabbis and the, and the discussions they would have about, about uh, the law. And Jesus is saying, you have the authority. You, you hold the key. You hold the, the message that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's interesting that Jesus would say that, remember again who he's talking to. This is the church right now. These 12 guys. 
in Caesarea Philippi, a pagan, pagan place. And he looks out at them, these 12 guys who will soon desert him. Peter, and just, who he just said, you're the rock, I'm going to build my church on you. Going to desert him. These guys, these guys, these are the ones you're giving the keys and the authority to? These 12 guys? Are you kidding me? It's, it's like giving keys to a, to a Lamborghini to a six-year-old and say, hey, take it for a spin. And yet that's what he, he's looking at these 12 who are going to run away. And soon, Peter gives the right answer this week. Next week, when we're in this same passage next week, he's going to give the wrong answer. To these 12, what does he see in them? And maybe a better question is, what does he see in us? You know, we have the keys. We have the gospel. We believe Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he has called us to be the church, to be the ones who proclaim this glorious message, to be the ones that tell others the good news, to tell them and to rescue them and to be there for them and to care for them and to love them. That's the church of Jesus Christ. You know, this isn't the first time that the world has faced a pandemic or, or a terrible time. It's happened before. And it's interesting, you know, the church began with these 12. Even after everything that Jesus did, all the miracles, even raising the dead, feeding thousands, and even after his death and resurrection, there were only 120 people that gathered in the upper room. Church growth experts would tell you that's not very good. Three years of ministry and doing all sorts of miracles death and resurrection, and still only 120 believers. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people became Christians that day, the Bible tells us. So now the total is 3,120 believers. And in the time between that, roughly, let's just say, 33 A.D. to the year 100 A.D., when the last disciple died, John, the apostle John was the last living disciple, and about the time when he passed away, most historians would say there were 25,000 Christians. Again, that's not very impressive. 25,000 Christians in 67 years? That's not very great. But then between the year 100 and the year 313, the year that Christianity became legal, remember during those, that time, Christianity was not legal. If you were a Christian, you could be fed to the lions in the Colosseum. It was a very difficult time to be a Christian. So in the years between 100 and 313, those 25,000 people grew to 20 million believers. What happened? What, how could they go from, in the first, in the first 67 years, only gain 25,000 while the disciples were still living? And yet from 100 to 313, when all the disciples had died, and the only thing they had was the message, the word, how could they go from 25,000 to 20 million? Historians will tell, you, tell us it wasn't because of a great preacher that inspired, I'm, although I'm sure there were great preachers. And what happened? Strangely enough, what happened 
is two major plagues that were wiping out people. In fact, by the year 250, uh, the death rate was about 5,000 people a day. Imagine that. Terrible time. Awful time. People dying all around. And yet the church grew. How could the church grow when they were, when they were in the midst of such turmoil? I'll tell you what happened. Plague came to a city. Everyone in the city, everyone left. Except the sick and the dying and the Christians. The Christians stayed behind. The Christians were the hands and feet of Jesus. The Christians who were following the one who touched the leper would go to those in, infected with the plague and they cared for them, even though they knew. And some of them did. Some of them died, even though they knew the risk. We could die by staying here. But not all of them died. And not all of those people who were infected died. And they turned to Jesus and their family members, some of their family members who abandoned them. They knew, wait a minute, we left, but those Christians, those, those Christians... Those ones with the love of Jesus, they stayed and they cared and they loved our loved ones. And they turned to Christ. And this movement started growing because the Christians were behaving like Jesus. Can I tell you, that's, that's our call today as well. That we Christians, in the midst of this COVID-19 that forced us to go online, instead of gathering together, that we would behave as Christ. Not fearful, faithful. Not, not, not shutting ourselves off, but caring for our neighbors. Maybe, maybe it means calling a senior citizen who probably should stay home and saying, do you need anything? Can I help you? Maybe it's going to a neighbor who, who maybe you haven't even talked to for a while and saying, and just starting some conversations and being faithful and being strong and saying, you know what? The, all the, the, the gates of hell can't overcome the church of Jesus Christ. And we're here for you. It's saying that we will be the body of Christ. Whatever's happening out there, we're the church of Jesus Christ. The one who cares for the sick and who loves the, 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 the troubled and it was the answer, the answer that our world desperately needs. Father, we have gathered all over this county this morning, the Church of Jesus Christ. No matter what's going on, Lord, you've called us to reflect your heart to our world. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful, that that, that call, that question that you ask us, who do you say I am? Lord, you've shown us the way. May, be, may we be faithful in this time, in these days. We love you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior and soon coming King. Amen.